CPD Health Courses. Dry needling training for health professionals. Online theory plus face-to-face -face practical. Start your training today at cpdhealthcourses.com. Okay, welcome to this CPD Health Courses special event. I'm Wayne Mahmood, Director of CPD Health Courses. I'm delighted to welcome my guest tonight, Dr. Carol Bron, who will be talking to us about shoulder pain and in particular trigger points causing pain in and around the shoulder region. Dr. Bron is a Dutch physical therapist and a co-owner of the physical therapy practice specializing in treating neck, shoulder and upper extremity disorders in Groningen, I hope I pronounced that correctly, in Holland. And uh, he's also co-founder of Myofascial Pain Seminars, one of the leading course providers of dry needling training in the Netherlands. Dr. Bron has been a physical therapist for over 36 years, incredible amount of experience. He's earned his PhD in 2011 and his thesis is titled Myofascial Trigger Points in Shoulder Pain, Prevalence, Diagnosis and Treatment. It's a wonderful study and very, very applicable to all manual therapists, which is why we're talking to him today. He's published many research articles about shoulder pain and myofascial trigger points and co-authored several chapters in textbooks about shoulder pain, dry needling and manual therapy. He's a member of the board of directors of the International Myopain Society, member of the advisory board for the campaign for preventing chronic pain and a member of the editorial board of Journal of Body Works and Movement Therapies. Dr. Bron, welcome and thank you for joining me on this podcast. I really appreciate your time today and I'm sure that my listeners will find our discussion very valuable and interesting. Uh, for many uh, manual therapists, shoulder pain presentations are, are very much a paradox. And on, on one hand, shoulder pain is thought to have a one-year prevalence of between 20 to 50 percent. To quote your own research, but although it's very common, it's still very poorly managed, often misdiagnosed and poorly understood. So we see a lot of shoulder pain in our practices, but on the other hand, we're not that good at treating them. Do you agree? Well, first, uh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, I appreciate having the possibility to share my thoughts about shoulder pain with you and your listeners. Um, to answer your first question, uh, yes, I fully agree with you. Uh, together with low back pain and neck pain, and shoulder pain is the most common musculoskeletal disorder. And as the name shoulder pain suggests, we are not very confident with the diagnosis. We do not really know what the exact um, mechanisms behind shoulder pain uh, are for this moment. So for decades, we have thought that the shoulder pain was caused by inflammation, like in tendinitis and bursitis. And um, although these conditions uh, exist, the majority of shoulder complaints are not the result of inflammation. Uh, for example, Karim Khan already pointed this out in 1996 in the BMG, and uh, I believe that this hasn't changed over the last 20 years since then. On the other hand, famous American orthopedic surgeons like Dr. Charles Neer and Dr. Robert Medivieza uh, thought that the one who designed the shoulder had probably made a little mistake. <laughs> and they thought that the subacromial region, in fact, the area where patients feel the pain, was a little too narrow. Mm. They invented the subacromial impingement syndrome. 
And many other authors use this model to explain why patients felt pain, especially during abduction. Right. In, in 2011, a group of researchers from Seattle in the USA, um, among them uh, Frederick Madsen, showed in a <coughs> thoroughly undertaken systematic review that there is no compelling evidence that subcranial impingement exists at all. Mm. And we do not know the exact mechanism behind shoulder pain. How should we then be able to diagnose this condition and treat it in the right way? Okay, that's a, 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 an excellent answer. The best bit that you came up with was uh, the bit about the person who designed the, um, uh, the, the shoulder. Or, or the, 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 the entity or the person who designed the uh, shoulder had a very good sense of humor, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, so, thank you, uh, Carol. Uh, let me go on to a little bit more about that question. Why do you think shoulder pain is so elusive? with respect to really understanding and treating it well? Uh, well, I, I believe that shoulder pain is in that respect not different from low back pain or neck pain or any other pain condition. If we are looking for tissue that is causing the pain, um, then we should not only focus on bone, cartilage and tendons, but we should also focus on muscle tissue and nerve tissue as well. Hmm. The reason for not doing that is probably because X-ray, MRI and sonography can make all other tissues much more visible. It is only since a few years that, thanks to Dr. Jay Shah and Dr. Sarhada Siktar, that we know that myofascial trigger points, for instance, can be seen on sonography. Mm. And if you tell patients and even doctors that you have suspicions that the patient is suffering from muscle pain, they mostly reply with saying that muscle pain or muscle soreness is a condition that recovers within, within five to seven days and does not need treatment at all. Hmm. So if we deny that muscles can be very painful and can also be that for a longer period, then we will never understand shoulder pain. That doesn't mean that we should only focus on muscle pain and trigger points, but I just plead for not denying its existence. Yes, uh, I agree. It's, uh, it's wonderful work that uh, you, you mentioned before by Dr. Jay Shah, Dr. Sikta, um, who I spoke to recently, actually, while I was in the States, and uh, they're doing a, a great job there of helping us to understand more about trigger points and how to actually locate them and about the size of them as well, the size of trigger points. It's very interesting work. Uh, now, uh, next... Yes, it, it is. Uh, your research has been mainly about the relationship between myofascial trigger points and shoulder pain, which we'll get onto shortly. However, we all know that as manual therapists, we need to have a good understanding of a patient's presenting history and examination, including orthopedic testing, before we can start talking about treatment. So let's start there, because you came up with some interesting findings about orthopedic testing and imaging to do with the shoulder. Tell us what you found uh, in relation to orthopedic testing first, Carol. Uh, if, you, if you read the literature about orthopedic shoulder tests in relation to subacromial impingement syndrome, or what we now call subacromial pain syndrome, all tests have shown to be not able to discriminate between patients with and without the condition. And that is because the condition doesn't exist really. In, in our study, we did not perform any of these tests except the painful arc test because of the low validity of those uh, tests. And uh, in none of the patients, we found a positive painful arc test. A lot of patients had pain during a 
uh, abduction, but the pain did not go away above 120 degrees of abduction, which should be the case in patients with subacromial pathology. Mm -hmm. And it is hard to believe. It is hard to believe that none of the shoulder pain patients had subacromial pathology when this would be so prevalent. So, mm. what we think is that subacromial pathology, like tendinopathy, is not a painful condition, but that the pain is caused by a pathology outside the subacromial space, which involves the shoulder muscles. And this is in line with studies that show that there is no correlation between rotator cuff ruptures and pain or disability. And then many asymptomatic subjects show severe abnormalities of the rotator cuff tendons, the subacromial bursae, and even the glenoid uh, labrum. Yeah, um, you're absolutely right, and uh, which is nicely going on to the, the next uh, uh, quote from your thesis that you made an interesting comment in your thesis saying that tests for impingement without rotator cuff tears are worthless for diagnostic purposes. What did you mean by that? Well, we know only very large ruptures of the rotator cuff, including the supraspinatus and the infraspinatus, can cause weakness. Now, very often pain-free. Although Kreef and Hubiet showed in a large observational study published in 2006, including more than 1,000 subjects, that there was no linear correlation between the size of the rupture and the disability score. And we know now that whether or not the rotator cuff cable is involved is crucial for the function of the shoulder. So in patients with shoulder pain, without large ruptures, orthopedic testing, uh, orthopedic tests are not useful in the diagnostic procedure. But if you want, you can use them as an instrument for evaluation. Yeah, yeah. So when we're all writing down that uh, we've got, you know, a painful arc, we've got a near impingement uh, and so on, really they should be taken into context of the whole picture rather than a single thing that's going to tell you what the problem is. Do uh, you agree with that? Yeah, it's not discriminative between structures within the subacromial acromial, uh, region and outside that. So yeah. It doesn't help you. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and it doesn't help you. Fantastic. This is this is this is the real uh, purpose of me talking to you as an expert in this area. And and it's the, the the wonderful thing about this discussion is that when people are listening to what you're saying, they can immediately apply this in their own practice, which is wonderful. Where research meets the clinician in what I call the sharp end when you're with a patient. And, and, and I can think about what you're saying and apply it in my, to real patients to help people and get to the, the, the source of their problem more quickly. Mm-hmm. Now, agree. moving on. So we talked about the, um, the orthopedic testing. Now let's talk about imaging because your study also found interesting uh, conclusions to that. And imaging such as ultrasound and MRI findings, you point out that the relationship between the degree of shoulder pain and image findings is not so clear. And your findings about the image, uh, imaging and shoulder pain are very similar to those in patients with back pain and disc herniations as well. So tell us about that. Well, uh, that's correct. With ultrasound and MRI, we can visualize especially soft tissues, uh, soft tissue alterations uh, uh, associated with tissue damage or tissue degeneration. But since there is no clear correlation between pain and soft tissue alterations, we cannot say that 
With ultrasound or MRI, we can find the source of the patient's pain. There are so many studies that found uh, the same abnormalities in subjects with shoulder pain as in asymptomatic mm. asymptomatic uh, subjects. Mm. So, f- of course, I'm not talking about medical conditions like fractures or uh, rheumatoid arthritis or malignancies or other severe conditions. That means that diagnostic imaging, in my opinion, is far from worthless. But we have to be very careful when jumping to conclusions just based on what we see in ultrasound images or MRI images. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, uh, in, in respect to the back pain and the disc herniations, I believe that, um, that that's, that's the case in almost all regions of the body, including neck pain, low back pain, pelvic disorders, upper and lower limb pain disorders. In fact, we are dealing with musculoskeletal pain. And because we are not very successful in visualizing the myofascial trigger points, we are often missing the major cause of musculoskeletal pain. Yeah, and and uh, just to go back a little bit then, which I was thinking about asking you while you were telling me about the uh, orthopedic testing to do with shoulders, how um, the validity is quite poor. I would imagine that similarly orthopedic testing for other areas other than the shoulder also have poor validity and therefore we should uh, also take them with caution. Yeah, and that, I think that's because all orthopedic testing is testing for um, structures like especially tendons and, and, and the bursa and so on and always denying the existence of the muscle as part of the, uh, part of the picture. So we have to, we have first to reorganize our thinking about musculoskeletal pain and, um, and, and, and a knowledge that, um, um, pain is also coming from muscle tissue. And most physical therapists, manual therapists, and also doctors, if they think about muscle, they think about the function and they, this is, muscle is the solution for treating patients with pain just by treating and exercising uh, uh, the muscles and not treating uh, painful uh, uh, conditions within the muscle. So yes, really to reorganize your thinking. Yeah. Okay. Now let's get on to the, um, uh, the thesis itself, your thesis, uh, which is very exciting, I must say, uh, and very applicable. You you set out to answer three great questions and ones that I personally want to know the answer to. First question was reliability of identifying myofascial trigger points in the shoulder region. The second, prevalence, how common are myofascial trigger points in patients with chronic shoulder pain? And lastly, how effective is the treatment for chronic unilateral shoulder pain? Let's start at the beginning with the first question you set out to answer. And I'm sure that you're aware Uh, of the debate that surrounds the ability to identify myofascial trigger points and even their very existence. How did you structure your research in order to answer this question and which muscles did you look at uh, and uh, how many examiners did you use? Um, Well, the the criteria we uh, used are the ones that are described by Simons and also later by by Robert Gurin and are well accepted by experts in the field of myofascial pain research. And the first criterion is the presence of a nodule in a tall bed. 
And second one was the reproduction of reverse pain when the observer put firm pressure on the nozzle. And the observer was not allowed to ask the patient whether this pain corresponds to their usual complaint because of the blinding of the observer. So they were not able to, to discriminate between uh, active and latent trigger points. And the third one was the presence of a visible or palpable local twitch response during snapping palpation. And finally, the fourth one was the presence of a general pain response during palpation, which is also known as uh, the jump sign. And those yep. four criteria were scored with a yes when the observer was certain about the presence of the criterion, and no if they were uh, certain about the absence or if they were unsure. So we asked three observers to examine three points in the infraspinatus muscle, two in the biceps muscle and one in the anterior deltoid muscle. Uh, a total of 40 subjects enrolled in the study. Uh, 30 of them had unilateral shoulder pain, which meant that we were able to use the contralateral shoulder as a control. And 10 subjects had no shoulder pain, so that adds 20 uh, control shoulders to the, to the total. Um, it's very common to use the Cohen-Scapa statistic for calculating the agreement in reliability studies. And we also calculated the prevalence index. And the, the uh, prevalence index is, if that is close to zero, that means that positive and negative findings are in balance. Um, and we know that the kappa is very sensitive to the prevalence of positive and negative findings. So it turned out that in many cases with a moderate or slight agreement, the prevalence index was closer to one. And uh, that means that you can't rely uh, on the on the kappa uh, uh, coefficient, and therefore we decided to present also the percentage of agreement. Um, so we considered a positive agreement, uh, uh, no, a, a percentage of agreement um, uh, larger than seventy percent as acceptable, because under ideal circumstances this would lead to a kappa of at least uh, 0.40. Okay. So these are very clear guidelines that you set out from the start, which um, that's defined your agreement about the location or the identification of a trigger point. That the person, the 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 uh, the um, subject was blinded, and the practitioner was blinded as well. They didn't know what when if someone was feeling a referral and so on. Yes. Right, and we we. Um and uh, ensure that the three observers were not able to uh, communicate uh, yes. with each other yes. ama uh, uh, about the patient they already yep. uh, examined. Yeah, so the raters were also blinded to each other's uh, results. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, um, what did your study show with respect to reliability? reliably locating myofascial trigger points is it possibly is it possible to achieve interrater reliability is that something that uh, uh, you can tell us the answer to well we, we found that with respect to the various criteria the presence of pain was the most reliable one uh, while the local twitch response was more reliable in only the infraspinatus muscle than in any other muscle. Right. So when combining those uh, criteria, the observers were able to achieve acceptable agreement for the presence or absence of trigger points with the highest scores in the infraspinatus muscle. Uh, one of the B 
biggest issues in this study was the presence of latent trigger points in both the contralateral shoulder, mm. which was the control yeah. of the shoulder patients, uh, as in both shoulders of the healthy controls. Um, latent trigger points are very prevalent, at least in shoulder muscles, yeah. and yeah. blinded observers are not able to distinguish between the active and late trigger points. So I think that for future research, it is needed to examine the participants carefully for existing latent trigger points prior to the study. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And from the study of Karen Lucas in, yes. from Australia, mm. how difficult it is to find uh, uh, participants, subjects, without late trigger points uh, in, in um, well, let's say an active working uh, a group of, uh, of people. Yeah. So finally, we conclude that the physical examination of myofascial trigger points is as reliable as other forms of physical examination including assessment of and feel in the examination of, for example, the neck. Mm -hmm. So it is, it is reliable, but, um, well, it, 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 the problem is that in this study is that you have to, to blind the, the observers in, in the clinical practice, of course, that is not, mm. uh, that is not, uh, um, necessary. And then you have a lot of extra information like your history yeah. of the patient. And so on that helps you to to finally uh, conclude about whether it's a, a myofascial problem or not. Yeah, but but we certainly in the infraspinatus, as you saw, uh, it was reliable uh, palpation. So why why did you think that some muscles are more difficult to get reliable palpation consensus than others? <laughs> oh, that's that's an interesting question. We struggled with that one too, but. Well, it's obvious that superficial muscles are more accessible to palpation. Mm -hmm. So palpation of the infraspinatus is not difficult. It's it's a superficial one, yeah. and it's, it's there are clear landmarks that you you know where the muscle is. But if you want to differentiate between, for example, the infraspinatus and the teres minor and the teres major mm -hmm. muscle, this might be more difficult. Mm -hmm. You you cannot feel exactly the 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 the. Um, differentiation between yeah the differentiation between those and for example in the biceps muscle it can be difficult to differentiate between the middle head and the lateral head so if you observe that one observer um, thinks it's in the middle head and the other one says it's in the lateral head uh, lateral head that means that you your reliability uh, reliability uh, uh, decreases so yeah. we believe that uh, uh, um, that the, the the problem of really uh, uh, calling names to the to the muscles that is a contributing factor to the level of agreement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and you know what you what you found is really um, it, it, it gives you some substance to what everyone who's worked on a patient as a clinician will know that infraspinatus carries very tender spots, exquisite tender spots. It's common. It, it, a lot of people have them, and they're easy to find. But what's wonderful about your study is that you made it even more difficult for you to prove that is possible with people who are blinded doing it. Um, and yeah. and it's, it proves what we find in practice rather than the other way around, that what you find in research, then we can apply in practice. We all know that, that they do occur in infraspinatus, and it's great to see that you can reproduce that in a study like yours. Now, let me play 
devil's advocate here, Carol. And I know what uh, you're thinking at this point. I'm getting a bit worried, but don't worry. Um, if, you, if you'll indulge me a little, opponents of trigger point mechanisms and dry needling in particular will say, this is the general uh, comeback to uh, when, when people who are talking about trigger points and re reliability, they will say that there's poor inter-rater and intra-rater reliability when it comes to trigger point identification. So what that means is that I might have a feel of a muscle and I say there's a trigger point there. Another therapist will come along and he says that, no, no, it's over here, it's somewhere else, or they might not be able to feel it at all. So apart from your findings in, in your uh, uh, study, are there any other studies that show good inter-rater reliability? Yeah, only a few. Um, it's not a very uh, popular, popular uh, issue for, for um, uh, Richard's uh, uh, ellipsic like. blind. So, uh, but there is the study from uh, Bob Gervin from 1996 that showed acceptable levels of agreement when expert were using a protocol. Mm -hmm. And without the protocol, even the expert reached only low levels of agreement. So it's, it's absolutely necessary that you have experienced uh, people that have good skills in palpation, but that you agree about whether or not you call this or a, a, a trigger point. So, um, for example, when you are uh, examining the infraspinatus or the the uh, the uh, trapezius, uh, the upper trapezius. There, there are, uh, it's it's often there are a lot of trigger points in that in that muscle. So if they do not agree about, uh, say for instance, uh, uh, an area of about one one square centimeter, well, that's probably uh, 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 caused by the fact that there are more trigger points in that area. So yeah. it doesn't mean that they do not agree. They just find several trigger points mm. in the same area of the muscle. Yeah. And um, more recently, Barbero showed in a nice study published in 2012 in the Journal of Manual and Manipulative uh, Therapy that experienced physical therapists were able to identify reliable, uh, reliably uh, trigger points when using a palpation uh, protocol. So um, I think that was the, um, the, the distance between uh, the findings was about one centimeter, uh, 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 so that means that you're really, really good in palpating that area and say that in this yeah. area there is a trick point, although it might be uh, one, two, or three in that area. Okay, so I mean, what's interesting to me is that uh, people who say that uh, uh, that uh, these studies are uh, somewhat poor in in the reliability. Uh, aspect to do with uh, inter-rater reliability, they'll say, ah, oh, yes, but you have to train all the uh, the people and nobody can feel them unless you train the uh, observers or the examiners. But I imagine that if we didn't have to train, if, if the studies that uh, we're talking about, the observers were not trained, the same people would then say, ah, oh, well, see, you didn't even train your observers. There's no guidelines. And so it's, uh, you know, you can't have it both ways. In any study, I think with any research, 
uh, one of the issues with research is because you have to have certain guidelines and very strict protocols, it sometimes makes the study inapplicable in a real uh, patient uh, clinic perspective. But at the same time, if you're only looking at one aspect and really trying to see whether your hypothesis is correct or not, you have to have good guidelines, good protocols, and black and white um, uh, guidelines for everyone to follow to know, well, in this case, this is what happened. Let's move on to um, the, the next question I've got. So the key issue with both of your research and other people's research is that uh, the, 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 the observers had to be trained in the protocol and they had to follow certain guidelines. So I find this particularly ex uh, acceptable uh, myself. It would be no different to any research study uh, that, other than what we're talking about now. And it, it obviously ensures consistency. So do you agree with that? Uh, yes, um, you know, in, in reliability studies, you like to blind the observers to the condition of the patient. And that is especially difficult in those cases where you are in doubt about the presence of a trigger point or whether it is latent or active. But in clinical practice, the patient can tell you if it is painful in compression. And this, of course, is a critical feature of a trigger point. Mm. It has to be painful. Um, Secondly, the patient can tell you whether he or she recognizes the local and referred pain as familiar to them. So that information is also crucial when mm. distinguishing between active and late trigger points. Yeah. And, yeah. and finally, when, when you find a trigger point, you want to find out whether or not this trigger point fits in the clinical picture of the patient, which includes the muscle weakness, the limited range of motion, the localization of the pain, and so on. So the average therapist should understand the myofascial pain concept and should have good palpation skills and can communicate with the patient, which is absolutely uh, important. And, and communication is, is um, the thing that we exclude from those reliability studies. Yeah, 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 that's absolutely right. Okay, now let's move on to the second question, which relates to prevalence. How common are myofascial trigger points in patients with chronic unilateral shoulder pain? And why do you think this question is so important to answer? Uh, before entering the study, all eligible uh, participants were examined by an experienced and well-trained physical therapist. And one of the outcome measures was the number of shoulder muscles with active and latent trigger points in the affected shoulder. Um, a total of 70 shoulder muscles were examined, and it was also an inclusion criterion for the clinical trial. Um, it, uh, the, the results were that we found three important findings. Uh, first of all, all shoulder patients that were included in our randomized clinical trial had at least one muscle with active trigger points, which means that we were able to provoke the patient's pain by compressing one or more trigger points. That means in our study with our uh, uh, patients with um, um, uh, unilateral shoulder pain, all patients had at least one muscle with trigger points. Mm -hmm. The second finding was that the average number of muscles with active trigger points was 6 and 5.5 for late trigger points, which means that um, treating patients with shoulder pain, if you try to, to treat the, the, uh, the trigger points, you have to search for, a, for at least, well, uh, uh, more than one 
and mostly five or six muscles with trigger points before the patient really recovers from their uh, uh, painful condition. Mm. And, and the third uh, finding we had was that the most affected muscles were the infraspinatus, which is uh, um, uh, what we find, find, find in the clinical practice. Yeah. Um, so the infraspinatus, the upper trapezius, and all three parts of the deltoid muscle and the teres minor were very often uh, involved in the, in, the, in the problem. Okay, great. Um, so, so tell us that that's uh, you've told us about the uh, the design of your study there as well. Yeah. So uh-huh. let's uh, now move on to the. You've told us about the results, which muscles uh, were most prevalent with in terms of myofascial trigger points. Um, and I, I've already asked you this question before about the infraspinatus. Why, why that uh, seemed to have more trigger points than than the others. So. Um, let's uh, let's move on to uh, the last question. But before I do that, let me ask you this: You mentioned that a really key point here is that you said uh, that when you're treating a patient, you've got to look for several trigger points, not just find one spot and treat that and expect to find results. That's good. From a, that's really interesting from my perspective as a clinician. You got any comments uh-huh. on that? Yeah, you know, um, when you when you talk with with uh, with uh, colleagues about uh, shoulder pain and they do not really believe in in myofascial pain as a part of the part of the problem, mm. mostly they say, "Well, when I put pressure on the trigger point and I wait for a while, well, okay, then the pain in the, at that point is going away, but it doesn't help the patient in in any way." And and then you have to reply with telling them that it is not just one muscle that is uh, uh, involved, but there are more, and they all uh, refer to the same area. For example, if, if you have a patient with, with trigger points in the infraspinatus, in the deltoid muscle, and in the, in the for example, in the biceps or in the, in the pectoral muscles, then uh, only treating the, the trigger points in the infraspinatus will not be enough, and patient will, will um, um, keep complaining about about their pain in the shoulder yeah uh, but what yeah. you find is what you find is that the patient tells you that the pain is is changing it's moving from from inside the the, the shoulder joint to more superficial when you're talking about the deltoids and 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 the beautiful sign uh, in clinical practice is that when a patient have has pain from trigger point from the end they put the whole hand on the shoulder and say, well, my pain is over here. Mm. When they are suffering from a trigger point in the deltoid muscle, and if you have moved, uh, 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 if, if you treated all the trigger points in the infospinatus and they are not active anymore, then they point it with just one finger and tell you, there is the point that uh, 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 there is my pain. So the pain is moving, but it's not going away. Uh, at that time, only when you treat all those trigger points, yeah. then the patient says, well, "Now I'm fine. Now my pain is uh, is gone." Um, maybe I can, can add something to the infraspinatus because, mm. well, that's a very prevalent one. And, mm. and well, the question is, uh, why is that so prevalent in, in, in respect to other muscles? And um, well, I'm not sure about that, but one one explanation could be. The, the infraspinatus muscle is active in almost every movement of the upper arm. 
and from electromyographic studies, it is clear that it's even active before the actual movement occurs. And in, in most activities of daily living, this muscle will be active, at least a group of type 1 fibers of the muscle. And, and according to the Cinderella theory postulated by mm. Hake, mm. Uh, it is always the same group of muscle fibers that are active. And that may lead to overload damage that eventually causes trigger point formation. And that is especially true for the infraspinatus, I believe. But, well, future research will, will give an answer on that, I hope. So, so it's a, the infraspinatus uh, might be the Cinderella muscle. <laughs> in fact, especially a group of uh, a group of fibers within the muscle yeah. is is, uh, is involved in the in the start of the uh, of the movement. So, yeah. it, even if yeah. you're not really moving your shoulder, but just are a little bit uh, tense uh, yeah. during your daily daily practice, like you are working behind a computer, yeah. uh, or you are a, a hairdresser or so, then the muscle is is active for for hours and hours, mm. it has no time to to relax. Yes, no, that, that's a, it, it's actually my favourite muscle, the infraspinatus muscle, because it has so many um, possibilities as far as referral goes, with the carpal tunnel, with the pain down the arm, pain in the shoulder region, uh, and uh, it, it, it's a, it's a really easy muscle to treat as well. Yeah, fully agree, fully agree, but. We always have to, to remember that it is not the only muscle in yeah. the shoulder, and, yeah. and it's uh, why sh when you overload your shoulder by by uh, doing all kinds of activities during your daily uh, uh, life, uh, why should just one muscle be involved? That's, yeah. that's impossible. If you move your shoulder, you you ha you need well about sixty to eighteen muscles. To make that uh, movement, so it's it's not real, not not realistic to expect that just one yes. muscle is involved. Of course. Okay. Now let's move on to uh, the final question in your thesis. How effective is the treatment of chronic unilateral shoulder pain? And by treatment, your study looked at treating myofascial trigger points using manual compression of trigger points, cold therapy using ice cubes, and um, spray. Um, and muscle stretching and relaxation. How did you standardize the, the interventions? Like, how did you say, well, we're going to give them this much of this and so on? Mm. Well, um, we took the easy way. Uh, we used a small group of therapists from the same private practice with the same educational background. Mm. And they were all well-trained and experienced in treating children patients with myofascial treatment points. And then the therapists had uh, to discuss the myofascial trigger point approach frequently and, and reach consensus uh, prior to the start of the, of the trial. So the therapists were encouraged to discuss uh, the content of uh, their interventions with uh, the lead investigator to ensure that all the interventions were consistent with the treatment protocol. Um, okay. Additionally, every six weeks, the lead investigator interviewed the patients and asked them about the content of the intervention, and also if there were had uh, if there had been any co-interventions. Right. So okay. That was our yeah, and, and, and we we uh, just uh, tried to uh, to um, um, to investigate the the uh, an intervention that that reflects daily practice. Yeah. And not just just take one 
intervention out of the, of the uh, of the program yeah. and just ask for that because when you have a patient that that has a trigger point and you only treat the trigger point without mm. telling them about some ergonomic uh, uh, principles and try to to do some relaxation if they are very very uh, active in the shoulder muscles then you will never never uh, succeed the treatment that that's why we choose for the well, the daily practice uh, yeah. uh, intervention. So the, the external validity of your or your study is quite high then because that's sometimes one of the criticisms of research is that no one just puts a needle in one uh, infraspinatus myofascial trigger point or, or no one in practice says, okay, do this one exercise. They do a, a variety of things. So you try to replicate that in your study. Right. That's, that's fully... Uh, Pretty correct. Okay, so your study went over uh, more than two years and had a you had a twelve week treatment program. How did you account for what patients did outside the study, which has always interested me about all these type of uh, treatment-based intervention-type studies? Like if they went out and did some gardening or they started to play a racket sport or, or whatever, how did we a a account for those possible confounders or, or, or variables? Yeah, well... Um, that's that's always a problem with this kind of uh, kind of research. Uh, I, I fully agree with you there. But what we what we try to do is uh, we during the interview that I mentioned before, um, all the subjects from the control group were also asked if they were um, uh, if there were any relevant circumstances that may have influenced the outcome. So they were all encouraged to continue the level of activities from the last couple of months. And since all patients were suffering from chronic pain for at least six months, they were used to deal with their shoulder pain uh, at a certain level of activity. So um, there, there was not, there was no uh, no variety in mm. things they were doing. They and they were asked to please go on with with the level of activity of the last uh, few months. Right. Okay. So there's no change, and, and I guess that the answer to the question really uh, boils down to a lot of communication, a, a, a lot of monitoring, and discussions. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we did that with the group, with the group that, that received the intervention, but also with the group that, uh, that was in the control. Okay, so what's the, uh, what's the, what were the results? Um, we found that the experimental group showed a significant and clinical relevant improvement when compared to the control group after 12 weeks. And um, together with this improvement of pain and disability, the number of muscles with active trigger points decreased, while the number of muscles with late trigger points slightly increased. And this might be explained by the notion that active trigger points change into latent ones. Um, and, and I think that was for the first time that we, we tried to find an association between the improvement of pain and disability uh, together with a um, with a, a decreasing number of active trigger points, I've never read any mm. any research that uh, concluded that. Um, after six weeks, uh, fifty percent of the patients in the treatment group experienced already some level of improvement, although our scores on the on pain and disability uh, were not significant significant different from the from the control group. Right. But that means that right. you, after six weeks, you, your patient already has the experience that it's, it's, it's going on, it's, it's going better. Yes, yes. yes. 
Okay, how many times were you treating them? Every week, once a week, or? Yeah, they were treated once, once a week uh, for 12 weeks, so they received um, uh, uh, 12, 12 treatments mm. at the most. But if they were uh, you know, pain-free and had a, had a normal uh, function of the shoulder within in a shorter period of time, we stopped the, the treatments. Okay. Um, before that. Right. Okay, I got you. Okay, so another interesting finding that your study um, found uh, was related to central sensitization. Uh, Siegfried Mentz found that the expansion of he's done a lot of work with this, of course, and uh, he found that the expansive uh, expansion of receptive fields within the dorsal horn as a result of continued nociceptive input might lead to central sensitization. Now. So essentially, non-nociceptive input from non-injured tissues that were not perceived as painful could be perceived as painful in situations where you've got central sensitization. So in addition, lower firing thresholds may also lead to the perpetuation of central sensitization, of course. But what does this mean for the, the, the patient with, sh with shoulder pain and in particular trigger points in those muscles around the periscapular region? What's the clinical relevance, I guess? Uh, uh, well, this meets the, the the pain sciences and the the, the research on, on musculoskeletal pain. They reach, they, they come together. Yeah. If a non-noxious input becomes painful, um, that means that from that moment on, all kinds of normal pain-free activities are perpetuating central sensitization, which means that lying on your shoulder or pressing shortly on your trigger points or contracting or stretching the involved muscle is producing noxious stimuli. And I believe that is an important issue explaining why musculoskeletal pain can be so long-lasting and is almost incurable when patients are persevering in their uh, normal daily activities. They tell you, I'm not doing any special activities. It, I'm doing my normal normal things, my normal activities, and still I'm in pain. Mm. And that means that you have, mm. to, you have to tell them that they have to go down in their activity, they decrease their activities more than they normally should. Yes. And that's, that's exactly the reason why it's so uh, long-lasting. Yes. So when a patient says to you, look, I've, I've been I've doing nothing different. No, I've just been doing the same thing. Well, that's the point, that even things that don't normally cause pain are now going to cause you pain. So I think explanation as, uh, you know, the Noi group uh, you might have heard of, I'm sure you have here in Australia with the work of uh, Butler and Mosley. You talk about uh, talking to the patient and explaining to them what's happening often can help uh, to uh, reduce that sensitization level. Right. We always say it's not only the car, it's also the driver. <laughs> <laughs> is, is that a, a, a Dutch saying or...? You know, my patients always say, I have not done any any particular uh, activities, not, not very special what I've mm. uh, done the last week and still I'm in pain and I always say, well, if it's only uh, um, caused by uh, by special things, my practice would not, not be full of patients. Mm, yes. I would, I would, you know, yeah. everybody's doing just normal things, but normal things can 
yeah. and creates the problems as That's well. right. And what's normal for one person is not normal for another. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so um, we, what uh, we'll, we'll do now, you've spent a, a, a wonderful amount of time with us, uh, Carol, and I really appreciate your time this morning. Uh, but I'd just like to summarize what we've said, and in particular your findings in your thesis. First of all, with the first question that we, we arrived at, maybe if we can just get a precy of that. Uh, so how much reliance should we have on, on imaging for a, a painful shoulder? Uh, well, as I said at the beginning, medical imaging is far from worthless. Yeah. But we need to be aware of the fact that a lot of findings just reflect the normal aging process and do not show the cause of the pain. Yeah, and, and same with the orthopedic testing? That's the same with the yeah. orthopedic testing, yes. Sure. Okay, that's great. So hopefully nobody's going to skip right to the end of this conversation and just hear this and, and, and save themselves 40, 50 minutes or so. There's a lot more to it. So uh, second one, uh, when should we consider active trigger points when presented with patients with shoulder pain? Well, if trigger points are active, which means pressing on the trigger point causes aggravation of the pain and the patient tells you, you're definitely on the spot and mm. there are no other signs and symptoms of other severe conditions, trading of the trigger points would be my first choice in all my shoulder patients. Yeah. Okay. Great. And, and and if I can just go back, this isn't one of our uh, uh, one of the questions we've already uh, answered, but it is relevant. I just want to get a, a a real live answer from an expert to this question. You're thinking when a patient presents with you because you're not you're not just a researcher, as if that's not enough, but you're actually a clinician as well. So what's really important for me is to convey to our listeners what you're actually thinking when somebody comes in with a problem that you've let's say excluded all the serious stuff, you know, pathologies and fractures and whatever else. But now we're looking at a, a musculoskeletal problem. You're thinking that it's a myofascial trigger point issue. What's really important for me, and I'd like to know what you think, is to, you must have a good understanding of where trigger points refer to so that you can go, okay, this patient will come in, they will come in complaining of pain in a certain area. So you think to yourself, okay, the clinical reasoning is Okay, which muscles are likely to refer to this area? And then you, you use that knowledge to examine the patient. Is that something that you do or do you do something different? Tell me. Now, of course, uh, we always start with, um, with a, a normal a physical examination of the, of the, of the patient. Yeah. And what I always try to do is to find uh, another explanation for the pain than my official treatment. Sure. Firstly look and see, well, is there any reason that they have uh, this, uh, this complaint without, um, without a trigger point uh, uh, problem? Um, and at the end, uh, when I've just done all the, all the normal testing, like what about the mobility, what about the, um, uh, the, the, the power and the, the muscle strength, yeah. uh, and, and, and is there any... Um, any uh, neurological uh, problem like uh, uh, sensibility uh, or uh, or so on. Um, but if that is all okay, then I, I go and see whether there is a myofascial trigger point uh, problem. So uh, in all in all cases, I just start with looking: is it 
something else than my uh, my visual uh, uh, pain, and that's the way I'm always doing it. So I'm. Uh, it's not only just uh, jumping into the muscle right away and yeah. say, well, there, is there a, 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 a painful point? Well, then we treat that. I I, I, um, I broke my shoulder a few years ago oh. uh, uh, during skiing. Yes. And I had a uh, I had a fracture of my. Um, Quite a tu uh, tuber tubercle, yeah. And um, I was sitting on the on the snow at that moment, I, and I felt really a trigger point in my deltoid. Huh. Uh, uh, <laughs> That's, That's all you felt. <laughs> but, yeah, but I was still aware that there was something else. Uh, I was not able to move, so I thought, well, maybe there is a trigger point in my in my deltoid muscle, mm. but there is definitely something else, and I have to go right. for a, uh, for an X-ray okay. <laughs> first. I thought you diagnosed yourself with a trigger point problem, not a fracture. You were trying to think you didn't fracture your arm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was quite sure about that, but I, 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 don't, I didn't like to admit that because it was the end of the of the holiday. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay, okay. Well, you're all good now, though. You, you, you've got, you've got yeah, no more. Yeah. Okay. That's, <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. Uh, now. Um, the, the, the question I was going to ask you, we've really gone over about the infraspinatus muscle and uh, how other authors have implicated it in carpal tunnel syndrome and so on. Would you like to add anything more to that or, or are you uh, okay with that answer? Yeah, well, you, you told already that yeah. infraspinatus is your, is your favorite. Yeah. It's, uh, it's as well. Uh, I'm, I'm very fond of this mm. muscle. And if, if active trigger points... Uh, are present in the infraspinatus and you decide not to treat it, the patient will probably never fully re recover. And mm. that's an important thing to know. Yeah. If you're treating all kinds of problems within the shoulder and, and the trigger points stay there, you never will be fully uh, yeah. uh, pain-free. Okay, that's great. Well, that's a, an excellent endorsement of uh, my favorite muscle. <laughs> now, um, so uh, finally, um, now it, it's great to, to, to have research and to have people such as yourself giving us this information, but essentially we're producing more manual therapists all the time. So it's, it's important to know how that is affecting undergraduate training. Is Are your findings and other people's findings about pain science and myofascial trigger points, is that filtering through to undergraduate education as you see it? No, well, to be honest, I believe that um, my official trigger points uh, uh, within and, and my official pain syndrome, including in the undergrad uh, education, is crucial. Um, but on the other hand, we also need much more research, especially for better understanding the nature of trigger points, because um, that helps to improve also the education. What I what we see in in the in the last well, 10, 50 years that in undergraduate education um, there is more attention to to um, the myofascial uh, trig point uh, pathology problems. Um, but on the other hand, if I look especially to um, how they uh, look at uh, shoulder pain, there's uh, uh, trig points are not very often involved in the in uh, in the understanding of the shoulder pain and and the and the explanational model mm, mm. that uh, that is used, so there's a there's a long way to go. We yeah. have to do a lot to to uh, help people to understand that muscle pain is just part of the of the whole model, 
And yes. we do not do that. Well, we just train all kinds of, we just exercising the muscles and mm. where the trigger points are uh, present and that, that will not uh, help the patient. Yeah, I think yeah. you're absolutely right. I think, uh, you know, to digress just a little bit, even the treatment uh, that's taught at undergraduate level now, uh, we need to do that better because um, very much the treatment these days is, is tends to be unidimensional. It's, you know, external rotation and internal rotation rather than more a functional type exercise program because we know that everything is connected. But um, I think there's, we've got a long way to go, as you say. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And that's because, yeah, what you say, it's a unilateral approach and um, uh, you have to, to combine all those things. I, I always use the, uh, the metaphor with um, uh, if, you, if, you, um, if you break your leg, you have to uh, learn walking again. Mm. But the timing is essential. If you do that the next day, well, you, you, you get in, in big troubles. Mm. If you wait for four to six uh, weeks, and and the um, the injury is uh, is recovered, then you can start your training. The same with shoulder pain. If you start too early with exercises, you will uh, the patient will continue to have have a painful condition. But if you wait and you treat the trigger points and then start with exercising, that's not, then there's no problem at all. Yeah, I fully agree with that. Um, now. Uh what are, the, what are the challenges for manual therapists with respect to myofascial pain syndrome diagnosis and treatment in the future? Well, just by considering myofascial pain as one of the contributing factors in every single patient will help to decrease the enormous burden of patients with chronic pain. Trigger point therapy is not a single solution for every pain problem, but ignoring it is, it is to my opinion, as a clinician, and researches a cruelty, and it can help you to be more effective in your treatments. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to consider that. So, what you're saying is, we, we should consider uh, a myofascial uh, origin to, to, to pain. Uh, like you said, you you, uh, you exclude everything else, and then you arrive, you sieve down to that possibility. Okay. Now, we've come to the end of our discussion, but uh, before I let you go, I just want to mention the recent publication which you contributed to, uh, the, the, the book uh, Manual Therapy for Musculoskeletal Pain Syndromes, and you've made an important uh, contribution to that, including a chapter about frozen shoulder uh, impingement syndrome and therapeutic exercises. It's an excellent book and uh, I've already interviewed um, Jan Domerholt about this uh, a month ago or so. I've got another uh, webinar uh, with him uh, on my site as well. He spoke about the book too and I highly recommend the book. It's an excellent edition. Uh, uh, a silly question to end with. Are you happy with your contribution to, to the book? Oh yes, definitely. I'm I'm, I'm very honored to be one of the authors, and I hope that it will help to inform and educate physical therapists, manual therapists, and even medical doctors about myofascial pain and trigger points. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm sure it will. And uh, as I say, I'll add a link to, to the, uh, the book uh, on the site. So what's left for me now, Carol, is to very much thank you for your time uh, this morning. 
and uh, uh, in your time and uh, to hope that we can speak again. I, I feel like we could uh, talk forever about uh, the subject and uh, I'd love to uh, come over and meet you and uh, certainly uh, uh, chat to you more about this. So thank you again, Carol. We really uh, appreciate your time today and uh, it's been wonderful talking to you. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Carol. CPD Health Courses. Dry needling training for health professionals. Online theory plus face-to-face -face practical. Start your training today at cpdhealthcourses.com.